Welcome to the Arts and Minds podcast from Dominican University. I'm Leslie Rodriguez. Located in River Forest, Illinois, in 2020, U.S. News and World Report ranked Dominican University at number 10 among Midwest regional universities and number one for best value in Chicagoland. At the heart of the university is its Catholic Dominican tradition, grounded in the compatibility of reason and faith. The programs of the Live Arts and Minds series presented on campus each year are curated to reflect that tradition and build on the university mission to participate in the creation of a more just and humane world. Today's episode comes from the archives. Dr. Peter Hudis from Oakton Community College gave a presentation on the effects of climate change and global warming in November 2019. This recording was captured from a video of the live event, so please forgive variations in sound quality as well as the sound of the door closing as people arrived throughout the event. Philosophy Department Chair Dr. Tama Weissman introduced the program. coming. Um, I'm really happy to be able to, the philosophy department is really happy to be able to bring Dr. Peter Hudis here to Dominican. Uh, Dr. Hudis um, teaches at Oakton Community College. He's the author of innumerable essays and books. But, um, the last time he was here, he spoke about his relatively new book, Franz Fanon, Philosopher of the Barricades. That's before 2013. This That's one, 2015. 2015. In 2013, he published this book, Marx's Concept of the Alternative to Capitalism. Really great reads. Um, he's also the editor of the collected works of Rosa Luxemburg. And there are three volumes out. And how many more to come? 14. So 11 more to come. That no, no, 17 total. 14, 14 more, to come. more to come. Okay, he's got his work cut out for him. He's also a member of the um, uh, the. International Marxist Humanist Organization, which does some really interesting um, work and, and education. He's got some flyers that um, you're welcome to take or we'll pass out. But today, Dr. Hudis is going to talk to us on the Green New Deal, something that's, um, I think, hopefully near and dear to all of us. Okay, thank you, Pamela. It's great to be back in Dominican. Thank you very much, Pamela, for making this possible. And um, looking forward to a, a, a good discussion with you about an issue that's probably going to affect your life the most than anything else going forward in the next years and next decades, frankly. And that is the effect of climate change. Uh, a report issued a few months ago by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, which studied, this is an organization of major scientists that's been studying what's happening uh, with uh, climate change and global warming uh, for years now, uh, revised their earlier estimates, and they issued a report that estimated that we have about 12 years in their estimate to bring down uh, CO2 emissions in the atmosphere to a significant level. Otherwise, beyond that point, 12 years, if there is no reduction in emissions, the emissions, uh, we will reach the point uh, where it may become uh, impossible to reverse long-term effects of climate change. 12 years is not a long time ahead. And uh, the prospects of getting there don't look that good. But we have to do something to stop the uh, constant uh, and the rise, frankly, the rising rate, not the reduction, but there's a rising rate of CO2 emissions in the atmosphere, not only CO2, but also, of course, methane emissions, which are 20 times more powerful uh, per molecule than CO2 in facilitating global warming, because otherwise we're going to be in really dire straits. I don't like to do PowerPoints or bring up a lot of graphics when I give a presentation. I never liked it when I was a student. I thought it was very boring when people did it, so I'm going to shut this down in a second. But I did want to, in addition, uh, I want to show you some things about the Green New Deal. But I was tempted to show you another graphic, which I won't. But um, about uh, five or six years ago, a, a geographic survey was done of parts of the world that they expected by the year 2050 would be underwater because of rising sea levels. And they had this all mapped out. 
uh, but they revised it in the last couple of months, and they have now realized that the amount of uh, sea level rise due to global warming will be considerably larger. When you put the two maps together, what they expected it would be by 2055 years ago, what it is now, you saw uh, things like half the state of Florida underwater by 2050, the entire of, the entirety of southern Vietnam, the Mekong Delta region, which is home to 65 million people, will be completely submerged by water. Shanghai, the largest city in the world of 27 million people, will be completely submerged. It's only uh, 18 inches above sea level, by the way, right now. We're talking about tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people displaced from their homes and their livelihood, simply living in those coastal areas, not to mention many, many others in non-coastal areas affected by these conditions. So let's just think about it this way. Today in the world, right now as we speak, there are about 300 million people who are migrating, leaving home, trying to get to somewhere else, either crossing an international border or migrating from within their country, like from Western China to Eastern China, or migrating from Honduras or trying to to the United States. 300 million right now. It's estimated that with climate and environmental factors kicking in, causing many people to leave their homelands, and it's already happening, by the way, in places like El Salvador, where in western Honduras and eastern El Salvador, many coffee growers are being driven off the land because the rains are not coming at the right time, or not coming at all, and they're leaving their farms and migrating north. We're talking about 1.5 billion within the next two decades. Now, how, how are we going to handle a migration of a billion and a half people? And where are they going to go? So these are really issues for us to be thinking about very, very seriously. And that's why we want to have a discussion about the Green New Deal. So first, just a little bit factually what the Green New Deal is. It was, uh, it's a proposal. It's not actually legislation. It wasn't even uh, uh, presented yet as legislation to the Congress. Uh, by Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey in the, uh, in the Senate. And it represents the most ambitious and comprehensive effort or outline to curb climate change ever made by any politicians presented to the U.S. public so far. Uh, it calls for drastic reductions, drastic reductions in carbon dioxide or CO2 admission, uh, emissions within the next 10 years. That is, the idea is to end our addiction to fossil fuel within that period of time. Now, I want to make this clear. We talk a lot about addiction, drug addiction, this addiction, that addiction. What's the biggest addiction we have in society? We're addicted to fossil fuel. We've been addicted to fossil fuel for about 150 years now. And that is an alarming addiction, has really uh, negative impacts. So the Green New Deal aim is to reach a point in 10 years where there's zero net carbon emissions coming out of the United States, which means, of course, you're not going to eliminate all carbon products or carbon-based products or carbon-based emissions, but more will be taken out than will be put into the atmosphere, and there'll be a radical transition to renewable energy. So the Green New Deal lays out basically seven of these stipulations about how to get to that goal, and it's a very, very ambitious goal. So let's just review that for a second. One, dramatically expand existing renewable power sources and deploy new production capacity with the goal of meeting 100% of national power demand through renewable sources, wind, solar, etc. Second, build an energy-efficient, smart energy grid. Three, upgrading, get this one, upgrading every residential and industrial building in the country for state-of-the-art energy efficiency. Because you have a lot of leakage, of course, of, <clears throat> in terms of insulation in many, many buildings. Four, eliminating grasshouse gas emissions from manufacturing, agricultural, and other industries. That's going to be a big challenge because, after all, as you may know, a huge percentage of uh, greenhouse gas emissions comes from agriculture, agribusiness, especially from the meat sector, where uh, methane emissions is enormous. Five, eliminating gashouse green emissions from transportation and other infrastructure, upgrading water infrastructure to ensure universal access to clean water. Six, massive investment in green down, draw down of greenhouse gases. And number seven, making green technology uh, a major export of the United States. Okay? Now, that's pretty ambitious if you were able to do that within a 10-year time frame. And that's what most people focus on when they talk about this proposal presented to the U.S. Congress, the Green New Deal. However, that's not all what the new, new Green Deal is. And that's the interesting, important part of this proposal. This looks like a technical proposal to try to have more renewables, rely less on natural gas and certainly coal, 
try to eliminate coal altogether from our energy diet and, of course, to reduce the amount of gasoline that we use. But it goes along with something else. And this is what I want to focus my comments on. It also has these uh, seven policy prescriptions, or as I say, are ambitious enough. Yet the Green New Deal goes further by stipulating, I'm quoting from the Green New Deal, it shall recognize that a national industrial economic mobilization of this scope and scale is an historical opportunity to virtually eliminate poverty in the United States and make prosperity, wealth, and economic security available to everyone engaged in this transformation. So it lays out eight specific proposals for how to battle climate change by making a transition to social change. So let's just go over that very quickly, to transition to social change. And by the way, I left my thumb drive back in my office. So here they are. One, provide all members of society the opportunity, training, and education to be a full and equal participant in the transition away from fossil fuels. Diversify local and regional economies to ensure that all workers have the necessary tools and economic assistance during this transition. Three, get this one. Require strong enforcement of labor, workplace safety, and wage standards to have create meaningful career employment. Four, ensure a just transition for all workers, low-income communities, communities of color, indigenous communities, rural and urban communities, affected by climate change, by ensuring that local implementation of the transition is led at the community level. In other words, the transition away from fossil fuel to renewable energy should not be, according to the Green New Deal, just something that comes from, up, from above, but it should be generated by local consultation, local consultation, community organizations, input from people like ourselves. Five, protect and enforce the sovereign rights and land rights of tribal nations. Indigenous peoples, very important part of this, protecting their rights. Six, mitigate deeply entrenched racial, regional, and gender-based inequities in income and wealth. Seven, include measures such as basic income programs, universal health care. Yes, as part of the Green New Deal, there would be universal health care. And other, any others as a select committee may deem appropriate to promote economic security, blah, blah, blah. And then eight, get this one, deeply involve national and local labor unions to take a leadership role in the process of job training and work at the plant. So basically, these are social justice issues. These are not strictly about energy or technology. These are about making America a better place in an overall social context. That in the eyes of the designers of this proposal, the two sides go together, the technical and the social reform measures go together. And this is a, a relatively radical proposal. I mean, it's basically saying that to make a transition away from fossil fuel, we also have to ensure that every American is guaranteed a job at a livable wage of at least $15 an hour, that there is universal health care for everybody, uh, and that the rights of workers, indigenous peoples are respected, and that communities of color are involved in this transition and that are active participants in this process. I mean, these things are pretty momentous. Now, got an idea of the proposals now, right? The seven and the eight, I'm going to call them. The seven are the more technical side, the eight are the social justice side, yes? Some people say, look, what is this eight proposals have to do with fighting climate change? It's very nice to say you want justice, equality, uh, jobs for all, $15 an hour, higher minimum wage, whatever else. But that's a side issue. That's not directly connected to what the proposal should really be about, how to deal with global warming by reducing the amount of carbon dioxide emissions. So why do they couple these two sides together in, in the proposal? Well, it's about this, really. Fighting climate change involves social change. You can't have one without the other. We have to change our way of life in order to save the planet. That's really what's at issue. Let me give, give you this example. There are one and a half million people in the United States today that work for the fossil fuel industry. They work in oil, as running oil rigs, or they run uh, pipeline construction, or all types of other aspects of the oil industry, or the fossil fuel industry, not to mention well, there's relatively few coal miners in the United States, only about 55,000, but there's many, many others who work connected to fossil fuel industry. It doesn't make a lot of sense well, let me ask you, does it make a lot of sense to propose scaling back and eliminating this entire industry and then not taking into concern what's going to happen to the people who lose their jobs in fossil fuel industries? If people lose their jobs in West Virginia in coal mines or they lose their jobs right here in Chicago at natural gas plants or what have you, are they going to support a transition towards a green economy 
if they think they're going to lose their job over this, or their standard of living is going to decline? Probably not, right? So you've got to do something to ensure that people who are affected by this transition, it's going to upset a lot of people's lives, are going to get away from our addiction to fossil fuel, we're going to have to go cold turkey. And it's going to be major social changes. But we're not going to be able to get there unless we couple the changes in energy policy with providing people with a safety net, for instance, guaranteeing them that if you're displaced from your job in oil or gas, you are going to be guaranteed a job at at least the wages you get now, if not higher, in some other sector of the economy. And there's many areas that we can employ people in. Let's just face it, we're doing so much damage to the environment. It's going to take years, if not decades, to repair it. Just think about the amount of plastic thrown into the rivers and the oceans. And they've recently done a study. Plastic doesn't dissolve in the ocean, you know. It doesn't disappear. It's not biodegradable. It breaks down into tiny little, almost microscopic pieces. Absorbed by fish. We eat the fish, right? And that's, that's being absorbed by us. And nobody knows the long-term health consequences of these sort of things. So we have to move to some radical different changes. And that is one reason this social justice side is put together with the seven more technical sides of reducing our, our dependence on fossil fuel. There's another thing to think about this way. Who's going to pay for this transition? In France, you know, President Macron, the Prime Minister, the President of France, Macron, uh, he wanted to do something about climate change. At least he said so. So what he did was he imposed a carbon tax. That is, he jacked up the price of gasoline and you pay an extra tax on gasoline. And some of that money is supposed to go to ameliorate the problems of climate change. Uh, and also, the idea was you would consume less gasoline, obviously, if you had to pay more money for it. Now, what happened as a result? That tax affected poorer Frenchmen and people who were living in rural areas disproportionately, because it was a flat tax. It was not a, it was a regressive tax. And many people in France got upset about that, especially on the lower end of the wage scale, and they formed a movement called the Yellow Vest to protest the government having this policy. Now, I have very close friends in France. I spend... Most of my, many times I go to southern France, to Montpellier in the summer, I have friends are there and I hang out on vacation. And so I asked people there at Montpellier, I said, the yellow vests, people involved in this protest movement against the government, what, are you against are the proposals for healing the environment? They said, no, no, it's not about that. We want to also fight climate change, but we don't think that we're the ones who should be paying the price for it. Especially when taxes on rich people in France have been cut by the Macron government. But taxes for poor people or working people are going up. So the Green New Deal recognizes this kind of problem, which is why the Green New Deal does not include a carbon tax. That's a very important stipulation. Some people criticize it for not having a carbon tax. But the idea is, don't have a carbon tax that raises the price of goods and makes people feel that fighting climate change is against their economic self-interest. Instead, couple the Green New Deal with a set of policy proposals, which social justice that allows the majority of American people to realize at some point that combating climate change is in their economic self-interest, as well as their climatic self-interest, as you, as you like to put it. Now, obviously, to move in a 10 or 12-year time frame, to even move the ship away from fossil fuel towards renewables in a serious way like this proposal calls for, is going to cost a lot of money. How much? Well, it's going to cost many trillions of dollars. Some estimates, 10 to 12 trillion dollars. That sounds, oh my gosh, how are we going to get the money to do that? Well, guess what? You're already spending 10 to 12 trillion dollars with the system we already have. The oil and gas industry is a very capital intensive industry. You don't, you don't stick, a, uh, as you know, you don't stick a, a piece of wood in the ground to get oil. It takes a lot of technology, oil rigs, pipes, processing plants, refineries, the works. It's very capital intensive. That capital wears out very quickly to the high capital depreciation costs. So, the fact of the matter is, is that the global energy structure today uh, is worth about $30 trillion. Around the world, the amount of, of money that is spent every year, the value of the energy infrastructure, the electrical lines, the power plants, etc., add it all up around the world, is about $30 trillion. And that turns over every 30 years or so. What that means is there's at least a trillion dollars a year of capital depreciation costs in the oil and gas industry. So we're spending a trillion dollars a year to keep the system that we have. It may cost a, a, a trillion or two a year to reverse the system. 
So when you think about it in that context, it's not as expensive as it looks, even though there's going to be, of course, an immediate upfront cost to make this transition. So in that sense, we have the technological means to make a shift away from fossil fuel. Solar panels are getting extremely efficient. They're dropping in cost. There is a lot of other means that have come online to generate electricity that uh, can take us in a different direction. But one thing that's missing, well, there's two things that's missing. But really, one thing that's missing is the political will. And why is the political will in Washington missing to make this transformation? Because this Green New Deal is not going to be voted on by the present Congress. Not just because Donald Trump is against it, he just really ridicules this, and he thinks global warming is a myth and not happening in any way, but the Democratic Party leadership, led by Nancy Pelosi, calls this a green dream. And she says, this is too far out. She will not allow it to come onto the floor of the Congress. So it's not clearly going to be implemented, certainly in the next year. And who knows what's going to happen after 2020 election next year. The point of the matter here is the political will is missing now. But why is the political will missing? The political will is missing to a large extent because much of the political elite in the United States is connected to, frankly, economic interests that serve the oil and the gas industry. You know, one thing I, I often think about is when people deny global warming, even though 99% of all scientists clearly show from their studies that global warming, human-induced global warming, is happening, and it's happening faster and faster and faster. The fact that it's a little cold out today uh, shouldn't uh, confuse you about that is don't they think about their own children? Don't they think about their own grandchildren, what kind of world that they're going to provide for them when this crisis really gets out of control? I think that they do care about their children, and they do care about their grandchildren. But the wealthy elite in the United States thinks that their children and grandchildren will be taken care of. Much of the rest of the world will be on the water. Much of the rest of the world will be suffering from all kinds of deprivations uh, due to climate change. But they think that they will have the economic resources and the wealth to keep their privileges intact. In other words, if they live by the motto, after me, the deluge. That means a little bit more now than it used to. So now, what about this Green New Deal? Is it really practical? Or is there some way to build on it, to push it, something through that can reverse where we're going? Well, there is a kind of elephant in the room that's left unmentioned by the Green New Deal. And that is capitalism. The word does not appear in the, in the document, and understandably so, uh, given that it's a legislative initiative to the U.S. Congress. And why I say it's the elephant standing in the room. Capitalism has been addicted on fossil fuel since its inception. And there's a wonderful book that documents this, by the way, Andreas Malm, M-A-L-M, called Fossil Capital, uh, which I think you all should read if you're interested in the subject, uh, which explains why there's something very specific about capitalism that has a love affair with fossil fuel. And it's going to be very hard to transition away from fossil fuel unless we find some way, at least in a provisional way, to transition away from capitalism. And here's why. You have in your image, think back for a minute, the Industrial Revolution, which in the late 1700s, early 1800s, began to transform Europe and America and eventually now the entire world, moving from farms to factories, right? And the big industrial expansion. What, what was the energy source in the early Industrial Revolution when they first opened factories? Textile mills. Not coal came in later. The original source, water. Right, right, very good. Water. Water power. You have a river. You put a wheel in the thing. The water turns the wheel. The wheel turns an axle. The axle turns a crankshaft. The crankshaft goes up and down. That's the basis of the motor of, of automobile engine, by the way. Originally used that to grind grain. And you can do all kinds of other stuff with it. Hook it up to a, a, a loom and it. And the, the thing going up and down powers a loom. And you have the textile industry. That's what the first goods made in the Industrial Revolution was textiles, right? Clothing. Water power, it turns out, was very efficient and very effective. And then, some decades later, starting by the 1840s, 30s, and 40s, they started to bring in coal. Now, what we were all brought up and told in school is that they went from water to coal because coal was more efficient. Lowers the cost of production and increases output. It's better for the economy to use coal than water. The people could make money off of that. That's right. But it wasn't because it was more efficient. It wasn't because it was more efficient. It turns out that the, the, the mom has done the statistics, knows this stuff. Water power was actually more efficient. But there's a problem with water power. You have your factory, you have to have the river next to it, right? 
if the water runs out in the river, your thing doesn't run. The wounds don't run. But what is it about coal or or, or natural gas or uh, petroleum that solves that problem? You can move a factory anywhere you want. It doesn't have to be connected to the natural landscape. And you just plug in this high energy quotient, fossil fuel, and you can run the factory anywhere. So it generates higher profit. It generates more money. It generates more profit. Therefore, that's the direction that capital moves. So it went away at a certain point. Capitalists realized, wait a second, we get more mobility through fossil fuel. Now, you all know that the world we're living in today is a highly mobile world, more so than in the early Industrial Revolution. You can pick up a factory in the United States and move it to Mexico in a week. You can pick it up in Mexico and move it to China in a few weeks. You can pick it up in China, as they're doing now, and move it to Bangladesh. And by the way, the next big area for global capital to find low wages, because the wages are, are so getting higher in China, so they're moving out of China to go to places like Vietnam, where the wages are one-third of China. But China, Vietnam's wages are also going up gradually. And of course, Bangladesh is therefore a big place for capital to go. The average Bengali, who makes most of your clothes, by the way, probably, earns about $45 a month. But even that is too expensive for many corporations. They're looking at East Africa, especially Ethiopia, as the next big place to invest in, because now Ethiopia finally has a national energy grid. Didn't happen until a few years ago. And their wages are about $20 a month on average. So what we're talking about here is this fits very nicely into the capitalist business model. And that is why it became hooked. The drive of capital to migrate to where it can find the lowest possible wages to make the highest possible profit. And that is why uh, 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 fossil fuels fits very neatly into that kind of development model and why it's being used not only by uh, countries that call themselves capitalists uh, in the West, but also by those who may still call themselves not capitalists, like China, which is doing the same, playing the same game. Uh, China is building one uh, coal-fired power plant a week. They're building a lot of, they're investing a lot in green technology, but not at the rate that they're investing in coal. And coal is the dirtiest kind of fuel that puts in more global warming into the atmosphere than any other fossil fuel. That's a really dangerous thing. Now, how are we going to get out of this? We're not going to get out of this problem by taking actions as individuals alone. Now, of course, anything we can do to reduce fossil fuel consumption on an individual basis is to be welcome. At my college, at Oakton Community College, we have a group of students for social justice, and the students, after we had some discussions about global warming, decided we want to do a little something, at least something on campus, to contribute to the fight against global warming. So what they did is they petitioned the college administration to ban the sale of water bottles. Now, when you buy a plastic water bottle, it costs more money to make the bottle than to put the water in there. And when you add up the amount of, and of course, plastic is a petroleum byproduct. And when you add up the amount of petroleum and gas that's needed to make these plastic bottles and how much carbon dioxide that releases into the atmosphere and into the oceans and everywhere else, that's a serious problem. So they organized and they got the college to no longer sell water bottles. Now, now the college makes sells its own, you know, uh, metal container water bottles water bottles that uh, we all carry around. It says Oakland Community College. It's a very small step, but it's a welcome step. It's a welcome step if you cut down your meat consumption. Because there's a real big problem. There's methane that comes out of the, you know, part of the cow, okay? The flatulence of the cow, and that is, it takes 10 pounds of grain to produce one pound of cow meat or beef. Uh, by the way, it takes four pounds of grain to produce one pound of pork, which is actually more environmentally uh, efficient. Although, uh, not as efficient, of course, if you just ate the grain directly. You can do a lot of things like that, changing diet, changing lifestyle. But those individual choices alone are not big enough to turn the thing around. We have to think of global. Of what we're facing now. We're all on the Titanic. It's a huge ocean liner. And you know these ships that are so big, you can't turn them around on a dime. You've you got to turn them very slowly in order to get them to turn around. So you need something to push the turn. Individual actions like this are not enough to make the turn. So what can make the turn? Government can make the turn. You can pass a law through the government that says a company, and that's part of the Green New Deal, of course, that you're required as a company to cut your CO2 emissions. You're required as a company to stop emitting so much, uh, depending so much on fossil fuel. And if you don't, then you get a fine or a penalty or something like this. Those sort of government 
directed actions, government coming up with a national plan to promote greener technology is absolutely necessary. That's why it's called the Green New Deal. It's evoking the period of the 1930s, the 40s in the United States, when Roosevelt tried to take the United States out of the Great Depression through massive government intervention in the economy. Now, actually, the, Green, the New Deal of the 1930s did not get the United States out of the Great Depression, however. Anybody know what got the United States out of the Great Depression? World War II. World War II. By 1943, 70 cents, 70 cents of every dollar in the United, circulating in the United States uh, was government money. Huge amount of government investment in the economy was pumping money into the economy, the deficit spending, and that's what lifted us out through the war expenditure. But nevertheless, the Green New Deal is harking back to that notion that the government intervention in the 1930s into the economy is what saved the country from collapse. And by the way, in the 1930s, the United States was coming on the verge of collapse. We had 30% unemployment at one rate, 3% unemployment today. So I'm trying to think what that means. 30%, 40% drop in industrial production. But it's a little bit misleading. Ocasio-Cortez herself said that she did not want to call this the Green New Deal. She thought it might be misleading. But others said, oh, that's got a snappy name. Let's pick that. It's a little misleading. Why is it a little misleading? Because the Green New, I'm sorry, the, the New Deal of Roosevelt in the 1930s and 40s was not an effort to steer the country away from the predominant model that the society was operating within. It was an effort to save capitalism, not to change it, not to end it, and not to transition away from it. It was an effort to save the system. Now, Franklin Delano Roosevelt made it very clear. He said he was part of the aristocracy, a part of the 1% we now call it. And he said, I realize that the interest of my aristocratic class is less important than the interest of the country. So he said, I am going to, there's a choice between trying to save capitalism or save my business friends. I prefer to save capitalism. And that is why he made the famous speech that uh, when all the right wingers were attacking him for raising wages and raising taxes uh, during the New Deal, he said to his Republican opponents, you hate me and I welcome your hatred. And his comment that he made. Because <laughs> um, he was fighting for the right, a just cause. But it's still somewhat misleading to think about this in terms of the Green New Deal, whereas I tried to mention, you have to transition away from this profit-driven model of an economy that we have. If fossil fuel is so incredibly profitly, it's so profitable, you have to move away from a system that simply relies on profit as the only measure of efficiency and equity. And that is something that uh, is in part recognized by those who drafted the Green New Deal, but perhaps not recognized or made explicit enough. So you need some kind of role of the government, however, in pushing this transition. However, it's important, and I think this is something that's often overlooked in the discussion, you can't rely on the government alone. And here is why. We know from history that governments are very inefficient. Bureaucracies are very inefficient. And we know that some countries that had a lot of state control of the economy, like the Soviet Union, were no less, if not more, environmentally destructive than the United States. If you want any proof of that, just look at, get out your Google Maps or your Google satellite and look at Central Asia, what's now Kazakhstan, used to be part of the Soviet Union. The biggest, or the second biggest saltwater sea in the world, the Azov Sea, not far from the Caspian Sea, what's now uh, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, in both. Is a huge, huge body of water, almost the size of Lake Michigan, maybe half, two-thirds the size of Lake Michigan. Salt water. It's gone now. Completely gone. The Russians simply used it to, for cotton production, siphoned off the water and everything else. It's turned the area into an environmental catastrophe. People can't live anywhere near it, and the water is gone. It's happening now in Iran, too, uh, with one of the largest inland seas in the world. Uh, societies that are run by centralized state governments often destroy the environment as much as free market government. So you can't rely simply on the government to solve the problem. There's got to be more going on than this. And this is one of the problems that I see with the discussion around the Green New Deal is that because people recognize we need immediate action to try to steer that ship in a different direction, and after all, the government has the power to do this on a certain level, people are falling into kind of a fetishism of thinking that, well, the state will be the solution to our problem, fetishizing the state. And let me just give you a, a little idea of, of why there's the germ of truth in that notion of relying on the state. And it's important to do it, as I mentioned. But there's problems with uh, thinking about that, uh, taking that too far. One of the problems, one of the simple realities is 
government has concentrated power in its hands to take to invoke immediate actions. Will we ever have a federal highway system if it wasn't for the federal government pushing it? Will we have a community college system? Will we have a GI bill? Would that have been promoted by private corporations? I mean, you think about, would there be an internet if it, the internet was not created by private industry? The internet was created by the Pentagon. It was created by the state, the government. It was originally an early warning system for nuclear war. Would we have your iPhone in your pocket if it was up to Apple or, or Microsoft? No. The funding that was necessary to do the research and development to develop these technologies like the microprocessor would never have come on board without hundreds of billions of dollars being spent on it by the federal government. No corporation had that amount of money on hand to do the research and development to put these products onto market. And so when you think about that analogy, you can see why it makes a lot of sense to rely on the government as a main mover in this transition. But as I'm suggesting, can't be the only, or even the, it can't be the only movement because government could also muck things up as we're well aware. Bureaucracy could muck up a lot of things. So given all of that, I got some, uh, just some modest proposal of how to maybe uh, deal with this contradiction. We can't solve the problem through individual action. We do need government intervention, uh, but we have to be careful about not fetishizing government intervention to the point of overlooking some shortcomings that government intervention very often has when it tries to introduce changes into uh, the economy or the ecology. So let's think about this. And it's in the spirit of addressing what's called the just transition. So a lot of discussion today about a transition from fossil fuel to renewable energy has to be a just transition. It can't be a transition that harms people unnecessarily. It can't be a transition that ignores uh, racism or sexism or the problems of economic inequality. A just transition has to put together a, different, a whole package of issues to move America in a different direction. And I think there's a way to do this so that we could at least move the direction of society away from the capitalist business model that we now have, even though we must not wait for that to be fully achieved before we deal with the pressing problem of climate change. We have to take steps right now. That 12-year deadline is approaching. And by the way, just to give you an idea of the thing that really worries me the most, well, should worry all of us the most, is the methane. It's not, uh, it's not the gasoline or the, or the coal or whatever. Uh, methane, as I mentioned, is 20 times more uh, a greater generator of global warming than uh, carbon is. So where is methane in the world? Well, there's an awful lot of it locked up in the tundra, up in cold areas like Siberia, Alaska, and northern Canada, uh, frozen under the ground, and there's a lot of it locked up under the seas. And the fear is, as the seas especially continue to warm, we know that they've been warming quite dramatically. We already see in places in Siberia, bubbles coming up from the tundra. You can see it from a helicopter flying over a plane. Huge amounts of the, just like bubbles, bubbling up from the earth. That is methane turning from liquid to gas and warming up to the point of escaping into the atmosphere. You could have a runaway effect where enough methane gets released, whereupon it's irreversible. The, the more that gets released, the warmer the planet gets, the warmer the planet gets, the more it allows more methane to melt and turn into gas, and you have a runaway effect that has no uh, way to reverse it. I mean, that may be along that way down the road that actually gets unleashed. It could happen in 200 years. It could happen in 20 years. We don't know. But it's scary. So something's got to be done. So this business of a just transition is a very important thing for us to think about. How do we do this and do it right? Well, no one's got the answer to that one. But here's a modest proposal. As I noted, the Green New Deal lays out the goal of reducing and ultimately eliminating net carbon emissions within 10 years, and that's well and good. Now, building upon but taking this Green New Deal a bit further, how about this? Let's envision the following scenario. Every company, company and business in the United States is required by government law, we pass a law to, in Congress to enforce that, that requires all companies and businesses to reduce carbon-based uh, products or CO2 emissions a certain amount within a specified amount of time. If they fail to do so, if you fail to make the conversion and you're not, or not uh, converting from fossil fuel to renewables, uh, like wind or solar or whatever, let's say if you fail to do so after one year, the government imposes a hefty financial penalty upon your business. If you fail to meet the targets again, 
even after you get the fine, the ownership right of the business is denied to the employers, and the government hands over control of the business to its employees. Now, please note, I am not talking about nationalization. I am not talking about status socialism. I'm certainly not talking about communism as existed in East Europe, Russia, or China. We're not talking about that. We're talking about turning over control of a business to its employees who can run it democratically as a cooperative, if the business does not adhere to these standards. Now, the employees take over the business, if that happens, and democratically run the company as a cooperative enterprise. Now, of course, these worker-owned enterprises, and there's many of them in the world, by the way, that people take over or have granted control of a company, and instead of having a separate ownership group called the owners or the capitalists, you have the workers themselves who both work in the, in the enterprise, but they also have ownership control of the enterprise. These exist. Of course, these worker-controlled enter worker enterprises would also face mandatory restrictions on carbon dioxide emissions and use of carbon-based products. If they fail to meet those limitations, those restrictions on use of them, the enterprise is hit with a hefty penalty, tax penalty. Since the employees, however, now own the company, and there are no shareholders or stockholders who don't actually work in the enterprise, that means the penalty can only be paid one way, by the workers paying it out of their own wages. Which means that the employees now have a built-in incentive to meet the environmental quotas, since otherwise they will earn less wages and benefits. Now, most people, if you ask them, would you rather do good to the environment and earn less money, or would you rather do good to the environment and earn more money, <laughs> obviously we'd, we'd go for the second. So you're giving an incentive to people to actually be in favor of these transformations. The employees now have a built-in incentive to meet the quota since otherwise they'll earn less. And since every, every enterprise in the country is subject to the same stipulations, there's no way to avoid the limits on the use of fossil fuel. Moreover, and here's a key point, since these are worker-controlled enterprises in which profits circulate back to the employers, employees, what you, minim, what you undermine is what we call the built-in growth incentive. All businesses have a built-in growth incentive. And certainly, a capitalist business has a growth incentive. Why do you go into business? You go into business to make money. And you want to make the same amount of money next year as last year? No, your incentive is to make more money than the last year to grow your business, to take more, more greater market share, to make more profit. If that's not your aim, don't go into business. Do what I do, become a philosopher, okay? <laughs> uh, but if you want to make that kind of money, that's what you do. That's, that's the game you have to play by those rules, right? However, in a worker-owned enterprise, the profits circulate back to the employees. So therefore, there's no built-in growth incentive. The workers may use a share of their profits to expand the size of the enterprise, but it's just as likely that they'll use it to shorten the work week, to provide services to its fellow workers, like childcare or educational services or whatnot, or that they'll simply give themselves a raise instead of expanding the size of the enterprise. Worker-controlled enterprises tend to dampen, at least initially, we know this from history, profit-driven profit imperative of capitalist enterprises since they're based on a different imperative, meeting the human needs of its members. Now, of course, all this becomes hard to sustain if you limit these changes just to one country, even as large a one as the United States. As the Green New Deal implicitly acknowledges in its last point, these changes have to be take place on a global level. But we can't say, let's wait for somebody else to get started before we get started. We're 5% of the world's population, we consume 25% of the world's energy. So if we don't get started with it here, no one else is going to come on board. Okay? Yes, China is admitting more greenhouse gas emissions at a higher rate than we are, increasing at a higher rate, but we're still admitting far, far more than China or any other industrialized country. So we have to take care of our business at home and hope that that becomes a model for those overseas. So the point here is that an, an effective transition from a carbon-based productive system, based on this little modest proposal of mine, could be achieved without relying exclusively on either privately owned or government agencies. The government provides the legal mechanism for transferring the ownership right from the capitalists to the workers who have the motivation and the incentive to care for the environment that the capitalists usually lack. But the government is not in the driver's seat when it comes to controlling the overall process. The people themselves are through forms of association and organization that they form as members of civil society. So I think this is just speculative on my part. I'm throwing this out here as a contribution to the discussion, a way to think more broadly about 
how a transition to a just, a just economy as well as to just post-carbon future can be brought about. And to not allow our thinking to be constrained within the duality of private versus state, which we get into all kinds of discussions, private versus state. Either the private industry, uh, private individuals or private industry has to do it, or government or state has to do it. There's a third way. It's called respecting the commons and having an approach that leads to the commons, working from what we have in common that we can share in common and develop in common. And that's some of what um, I'm driving at here. Akali Akuno is a, a member of the Climate Justice Alliance and uh, a director of Cooperation Jackson down in um, Greenwood, Mississippi, and uh, Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta, social justice activist, and grew out of the civil rights movement, by the way, this uh, Operation Jackson. And he refers to this, I'm quoting him, he has proposed something similar along these lines as a solidarity, econ a solidarity economy anchored by a network of cooperatives and worker-owned democratically self-managed enterprises, end quote. So basically what I'm trying to argue is this. In order to save and preserve what we have in common, the earth, we have to transition to a form of living and a form of society in which we respect the commons, what is common between us. That is the earth that we share together, the air that we share together, the climate that we share together, and ourselves that we share together. We have to find a way to have a different organization of society that doesn't simply pro uh, prioritize the accumulation of wealth for its own sake as an end in itself. We have a society now where, and that's true of every society on earth basically, because whatever society calls themselves, I think we're living in a world which is completely dominated by capitalism. Even the so-called socialist countries uh, just became another form of capitalism. Uh, as you can see by their environmental catastrophes as well. The point being here, however, is simply that we cannot stay with that same model of development. So I want to end on this kind of notion. I've been to China a number of times. And uh, <clears throat> last June I was there for a series of conferences and I have taught at Wuhan University uh, in central China. And I didn't even know about this, but some people had told me about this Chinese scholar in 1994. This is just when China was really taking off this new industrialization path, really booming as an economy. At that time, China was growing 10 or 11% a year. It's growing now at about a little under 5%, so it's really dropped. China's in trouble. That's another subject for another talk. But in any case, he had done a report in 1994, this Chinese economist and ecologist, and he said, looking 25 years into the future, what would the world look like by 2020 if China follows the path of the West and follows the industrial model of intensive carbon-based products and relying on automobiles instead of public transportation and trying to have this kind of model of increased material wealth for the sake of increasing material wealth as an end in itself. What would be the long-range product of this after 25 years? And he said China, if China goes down that path, China will reach the point where it will completely choke on its own waste. And he offered a different model of development. The government prevented his report from being published. And what here, they said, we know what the development model has to be. This stuff, you have to put aside. We're not going to listen to you. Well, I also was in India two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And I learned that a series of Indian economists have now picked up his ideas. They've learned about it, and they're trying to argue for, uh, for recognition of that in India, because doing the same thing in India, going through the same Western-inspired Western development model. And as you probably saw in the news, New Delhi, the capital of India, is the most polluted place on the planet. So polluted that they had to shut down the schools for four days when I was there. I wasn't actually in Delhi. I was in Patna and Bihar, poorest part of India. But uh, I had to fly through Delhi. But the point is, hospitals had to be emptied out. People walking around the streets in gas masks. People actually gasping because of the pollution is so bad. This is what the future holds for us if we don't reverse course. This is not a joke, folks. This is not an exaggeration. All the estimates that I have read for the last numbers of years of how bad this problem can get have all turned out to be too optimistic. And they're constantly revising the figures because it's all based on computer modeling. They're learning more and more about all the different ways the climate is affected by human activity. We're finding out that it's being affected even faster than it was anticipated 10, 15, or 25 years ago. So this is our future, and this is especially your future. This is why we have organizations like the name is blanking. Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. Extinction Rebellion. It's a beautiful title. I gave a talk in um, 
led in a panel discussion with uh, several other ecological activists, including Kale Saito, who I really recommend, have written a very important book, which I'm going to finish with in just a second, in which a number of activists from Extinction Rebellion were there. Some of them as young as 10, 11 years old. Uh, one of the panelists on the panel with us was 14 years old. Uh, and uh, the level of consciousness and awareness, because they realized they're being robbed the chance of, 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 of living on this planet in the way that's, that, that, has, that has meaning. The, the, it looks like within 20, 25 years from now, oceanic life, much of oceanic life will be extinct. We're talking about species extinction, which is, of course, happening, happening for decades, accelerating at a remarkable pace. So it's not just global warming that we need to be talking about. We need to be talking about all the other aspects of this ecological crisis. And if part of that, we have to think also about the more longer range, that if it's the principles of capitalist economics that produced this problem to begin with, and I think it is, and that's an arguable point, of course, and we can have a lot of discussion about that. A lot of people say, no, the problem goes back to humans intervening in the environment to begin with. So called the Anthropocene. As soon as human beings began to become numerous enough, that's when we started downhill in treating the environment. I prefer the term capital C. It's when we live in an era dominated by capital. Uh, we're not living in an era dominated by human beings. We, human beings, are dominated themselves by products of our own creation, capital. And that's what we have to get away from. So I'll leave you with this. I didn't know about this a few years ago. Uh, nobody probably knew about this a few years ago. Kohei Seito, a Japanese scholar, has over the last several years uh, been studying in uh, Humboldt University in Berlin and the uh, Marx Engels archives in um, Amsterdam, discovered that in the last years of his life, Karl Marx wrote a series of ecological notebooks in which he spoke about the impact of using chemical fertilizer on the soil and exhausting the soil through what we now call agribusiness and what effect that would have. He was commenting on other writers uh, who at that time were already raising the prospect of possible climate change. And Marx makes notes on this. So now it's not yet published in English. It's in German, but it costs 200 euros to buy it, so <laughs> it's not easy to get. But the point is, uh, there's one passage I found in there which I want to leave you with. Karl Marx writes, Extinctions have happened throughout history. Extinctions are continuing to happen today. Humanity is the greatest extinguisher of life on the planet. Thank you. The schedule for live Arts and Minds programs can be found online at events.dom.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to the production team of Samantha Barr and Patrick Serrano. Theme music is 10 Days Sailing by El Rey Music. Closing music, so proudly Dominican, composed and played by Sue Kaczynski. The views and opinions of the speakers in the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Dominican University. A wise Dominican sister once said, The search for wisdom, for love, for truth, is strenuous and unending. It takes good companions to persevere in it. Thank you for joining us.